don't see him. It's too bad because, um, as you may know, the topic, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, happens to be just the opposite of what Jim was preaching on just a month ago, which I guess illustrates the openness that we have here about uh, uh, theological opinions. Um, anyway, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual is uh, very much of a contemporary mantra. And being by nature a skeptic, I've long had my suspicions about that saying. <clears throat> As a young priest, members of the parish, unfamiliar to my eye, would tell me apologetically, well, Father, I don't get to Mass much, but I worship God out in nature. I'm talking about golf. <laughs> now, I have spent many hours playing at a game which from a distance kind of resembles golf, but I don't remember many moments which I would describe as worshipful. So, when someone says, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, I have to ask myself, what does that mean? I don't believe in the Supreme Being. I don't belong to a religious congregation. I don't think of myself as a fill in the denominational blank. I'm not sure. What's the positive content of that statement? As Jim pointed out, uh, surveys recently show a marked decline in religious affiliation over the past 30 years. This is a big shift. Americans have always ranked very high among nations in self-reported faith. And this decline began to show up both in church membership uh, in the 70s, particularly in the traditional churches, both Catholic and Protestant. <clears throat> there appears to be a marked political dimension to this shift of affiliation. During recent political primaries, Ted Cruz led Donald Trump by 15 percentage points among faithful church attenders. Trump led Cruz by 27 percentage points among those who were not regular church attenders. It may be the passionate affiliation of alt-right and Tea Party members fulfill many of the functions of church membership. There's a thought. In addition, according to Pew Research, white Republicans who seldom or never attend church regular church services are 19 percentage points less likely to agree that the American dream still holds true. To me, this reads as a profound loss of hope. Does this give a non-doctrinal denomination like Universal Unitarianism some kind of edge? I'm not sure what the polls show on that one. Let's look for some non-churched examples of hope-filled people. Our reading from Margaret Atwood's speech, candid, brave, and ironic, like her writings, suggests that the novelist feels a strong moral imperative to write what she writes, because it's doing her part, just like giving blood. 
Good writing is very like giving blood. Her religious background, none that I can find. Uh, she is a member of the American Humanist Association and describes her religious point of view as secular humanist. As for Mary Oliver, her vivid words need no further elaboration. But I'd particularly like you to meet Alexander von Humboldt. Born in about 1769, a passionate nat naturalist whose work influenced scientists across disciplines and across the world. I stumbled across Andrea Wolf's recent book, The Invention of Nature, a biography of Humboldt and learned a lot of amazing stuff. Humboldt began his career before scientists became rigorously confined to their own narrow disciplines. At the time, naturalists interested in botany were committed to classification finding new species and naming them, and locating them in a hierarchy of, but Humboldt did this to a fairly well, collecting, measuring, naming, but he always knew there was something more. The relationship between plants and different plants, and climates, and soils, and altitudes. Dare I say it? the interconnected web of all nature, our seventh principle, right? And Humboldt said it first, about 200 years ago, before Darwin, before Mendel, before anybody. And for Humboldt, and you'll hear an echo of Mary Oliver here, for Humboldt, it was far more than a dry scientific hypothesis. It was a passionately held conviction which drove him in its early 30s to spend much of his newly acquired inheritance on an expedition to Ecuador to climb Mount Chimaborazo, an inactive volcano then thought to be the highest mountain in the world. Abandoned by porters at the snow line, carrying dozens of heavy measuring instruments but no oxygen, Humboldt and his three companions stopped frequently to gulp for air and to take scientific measurements and botanic, make botanic observations. 19,000 feet, no birds, no plant life. They moved slowly through the fog, which shrouded the top of the mountain, and stopped at the edge of a crevasse, which ended their climb at 19,413 feet. Suddenly, the clouds lifted, and standing close to what he took to be the top of the world, Humboldt began to see the Earth as one great living organism with which everything was connected. He conceived a bold new vision of nature that still influences the way we think about the natural world. And he came to believe that a great part of our response to the natural world should be based on the senses and emotions. Humboldt wrote that nature must be experienced poetically through feelings. Did you get that sense in your biology classes? <laughs> if so, lucky you. How influential was Humboldt? Well, he numbered among his admirers Thomas Jefferson, Charles Darwin, William Wordsworth, Samuel Coleridge, 
Thoreau, Emerson, Rachel Carson, and particularly James Lovelock, who formulated the Gaia theory of Earth as a self-renewing ecosystem. A 19th century historian called him the second most famous man in Europe after Napoleon. So, was Humboldt a card-carrying Unitarian? Well, no. He was not a card-carrying anything, as far as I can tell. All nature was his church, if you will, and he didn't play golf. <laughs> but speaking of sports, let's look at a rather different view of spirituality from an unlikely source. Phil Jackson, NBA All-Star player, coach of the Chicago Bulls, to three consecutive NBA championships, whose notion of coaching was imparting the practice of mindfulness, selflessness, selflessness, and compassion. We're talking professional basketball here. In his book, Sacred Hoops, Jackson writes, in basketball, as in life, true joy comes from being fully present in each and every moment, not just when things are going your way. Of course, it's no accident things are more likely to go your way when you stop worrying about whether you're going to win or lose and focus your full attention on what's happening right at this moment. As Jackson puts it, the day I took over the Bulls, I vowed to create an environment based on the principles of selflessness and compassion. I learned first as a Christian in my parents' home, sitting on a cushion practicing Zen, and studying the teachings of the Lakota Sioux. More than anything, I wanted to build a team that would blend individual talent with heightened group consciousness. To the mystification of his players, during timeouts, after listening to their complaints, he would just look at them, saying by implication, you know what we need. Sometimes it worked. After the Bulls won two back-to-back -back championships, Jackson was forced to invent the awkward term three-peat and make good on it in the following season. He envisioned the game in the spiritual terms of mindfulness and flow, openness to and engagement with the possibilities of the moment. In his book, The Joy of Sports, Michael Novak, a neo-con Catholic lay theologian, there's a whole series of contradictions built into that introduction there, uh, maintains that sports is somehow a religion. Like religion, sports are built on cult and ceremony, on a notion of fate. Sports embody the almost nameless dreads which religions make explicit. A few years ago, the NFL, in all its power, tried to replace the game-ending term sudden death with the more cheerful formula, sudden victory. <laughs> they failed utterly. The fans preferred the drama. For Novak, the symbols and arcana of sports are themselves understandable in religious terminology and religious imagery. Sacred space, Lambeau Field. Sacred time, the play clock, the two-minute warning. 
the bond of brothers, the uh, uh, lost my place, agon, the inspired struggle, competing in self-discovery. Novak concedes that sport is not the highest form of religion, and Jews, Christians, and others will want to put sports in second place. But when human beings actually accomplish victory in sports, it is for me as if the intentions of the Creator were suddenly limpid before our eyes, <coughs> as though into the fiery heart of the Creator we had momentary insight. Uh, Novak's words, not mine, I don't write like that. We didn't quite put it that way at my alma mater, Notre Dame, back in the 50s. But the link between faith and football was quite palpable. We knew that convents full of nuns across the nation prayed for Notre Dame on football Saturdays, particularly when we played Southern Methodist. <laughs> And sometimes we wondered how they divided up when Notre Dame played the Jesuits' Boston College, <laughs> the institution where Doug Flutie threw the famous Hail Mary pass. Need I say more? <laughs> Recently, a State Journal reporter interviewed a freshman woman at the UW and asked her what experience had made her feel most connected to the university. Without hesitation, she answered, the jump around. That was it. As a longtime college teacher, I cringed a bit at that answer, but I think I might have to reconsider. The jump around, like the wave, requires the intense involvement of the whole body, together with hundreds of others expressing their unity and like-mindedness. Maybe intellectual content is a bit superficial, but the experience isn't. It's sacramental, technically. So where does that leave us? Is it possible to be spiritual, passionately committed to a cause, to the point of self-sacrifice, to have a world-encompassing vision, and to act in support of that vision without the need of a church membership? Obviously. But it also can be argued that Atwood and Humboldt had communities spiritual communities which supported them, Atwood with her readers, Humboldt with his scientific colleagues and admirers across the world. And the three-peat Chicago Bulls had a passionate, if somewhat mystified, fan base. Most of us don't have that kind of community, but we do have this community. Let me digress for a personal story. You'll notice that in the style. When I discovered in the midst of a Catholic retreat which I was conducting, and much to my surprise, that I was no longer a believer, I realized that my Catholic priestly ministry was not very much to the point. I divested myself of my vestments, literally, and my ministry, and I divested myself of church altogether. I acquired employment, credentials, a wife, and ultimately a long-time teaching post at, ironically, a Catholic college for women in New York. 
I worship, if that is the word, in the pages of the New York Times. <laughs> I developed a kind of liturgy, organizing that vast Sunday document, sorting out the sections that I didn't want to read, then getting to work. Front page, sports section, because it would date by noon. Uh, entertainment, because that was my work. Uh, opinions, because I had so many of my own, and so on. After years of this, my wife and I were persuaded to check out the Community Unitarian Church in White Plains, New York. With considerable reluctance, I agreed, but why? I already knew that Unitarians didn't believe anything. <laughs> we scuttled into a back pew, trying to look as inconspicuous as possible. I stared at the unfamiliar hymns, but my wife plucked out a folder which listed 50 propositions to be submitted for consideration at GA, whatever that was. With surprise, she turned to me and whispered, we agree with all of these. There were more twists and turns, of course. She's watching, I think. Um, but we had found a spiritual home. Spent the spring and summer of 88 on sabbatical in the Madison area, and well, here we are. And given these anxious times when, once again, we are trying to figure out collectively what this nation is about, in Lincoln's words, testing whether this nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. In the face of overt, violent, racist demonstrations, we hear the ambivalent responses of many of our leaders. And when we learn of and watch the repeated incidents of international terrorism, wearing it away at our sense of shock and horror, we need support for our spirits. I'm glad to be here. I need to be here to experience connection around the things that we believe. What we do here is a simple, concrete liturgy of spiritual practice, not alone, but together. There's a principle in theology, lex agendi, lex credendi. I had to work some Latin in. <laughs> Meaning, if you want to understand a person's belief, don't ask for creedal statements. Ask what they do in their religious practice or because of their beliefs. It's more authentic than the statements. What we do is what we believe. Here, we ring the gong and then we get present with the congregation and center in silence. Sometimes when you really get into that silence, then the service suddenly continues. You feel just a twinge of disappointment. If you felt that, you were getting in touch with the realm of the spirit. You could try this at home, but you can't borrow the gong. <laughs> Sometimes, when the last musical selection is played or sung, and it's perfect, and you don't want to break that moment of awed silence, that's the realm of the spirit. And we are healed and lifted and rallied by those moments. 
They don't happen routinely. But what we do here can feed the Spirit, can give us hope, can give a sense of purpose and focus for what we do out there. That's spiritual enough for me.